the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, Pardes alum. This week, Teruma. This week, Tovalei Nachmani discusses Teruma. Tovalei Nachmani is a member of the Pardes faculty. And now, Tovalei Nachmani. This week's Torah portion slams the brakes on the magnificent stories, events, and drama of the entire book of Reshit, Genesis, as well as the first six chapters of Shemot Exodus, where the Jewish people become enslaved and afflicted in Egypt. They experience the life-threatening trauma of the plagues, and they experience the exhilarating exodus and the earthquaking, fiery revelation of the divine presence before millions of witnesses at Sinai. From being an irresistible page-turner, the Torah slows to a crawl and begins a series of five Torah portions spread over nearly 15 chapters dedicated to the construction of the Mishkan, the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the portable structure built by the Israelites in the desert, which provided a collective center for their spiritual and communal life together. Except for the interlude about the golden calf in chapters 32 and 33, the entire rest of the book of Shemot, from chapter 25 through chapter 40, is all about the Mishkan. The Torah dedicates more verses to the Mishkan than to any other mitzvah in the entire tradition. Hopefully, if you are still listening to this podcast, you have faith that the Torah is eternally relevant and has something evocative to teach us, nevertheless. So while it's not the most compelling of sections in the Torah, to say the least, all these chapters about furniture in the Mishkan, I'm going to make a case for three fascinating and profound life lessons that we can learn with a bit of creative association from the Mishkan. These are life lessons about furniture, about love languages, and about silver sockets. So life lesson number one, the interior design of our homes, as well as the exterior, can have a significant impact on our emotional well-being, on our sense of calm, or stress, or anxiety. It can affect our openness to relationships, and even to spirituality. Look around at the room you're in right now. Whether you have your own home, which is well-designed, or whether you are renting a space you haven't invested in, it actually doesn't matter. Imagine your favorite room or corner of your home. It might be your kitchen or your office or your bedroom, or it might be the area you're sitting in right now. What area in your home lifts your spirits, gives you a feeling of calm or well-being? About what corner or area in your home would you say, I like being in this space? You might even be drawn to sit and read there, to talk with a friend or a parent or a child, or even to pray in that place because it's special. What are the colors, the textures, the furniture, the furnishings or fabric that make this very space special to you? Now think of an area you don't particularly like in your home or in your workspace. What bothers you about that space? What makes you uncomfortable? in that area. There's an importance of furniture, of what my space looks like. Interior designers know this in great depth, but most people just simply intuit that there is a psychology in design, in colors and textures, and the placing of furnishings. It's not just about the physical aesthetics of a room and its furnishings, but there's actually an emotional connection that aligns our physical space with our hearts, allowing us to be more open or to feel a positive energy in the room. We've all experienced the inviting ambiance of a home 
or a hotel or a restaurant. In fact, two restaurants can have equally delicious food and even cost the same, but the decor, the atmosphere of one can be off-putting, where the decor and ambiance or mood of another enables us consciously or subconsciously to have a more positive experience in that space. How do we connect this back to the Parsha? So connecting this back to the Parsha, we could ask the question, what did the portable Mishkan and later the building of the Beit HaMikdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, what did it look like? The architecture of the Mishkan resembled a private home, a table, a source of light, places where food is processed, a source of water, curtains, walls, a courtyard, and perhaps most intriguing, an intimate inner chamber known as the Holy of Holies, or a bedroom, if you will, the place where private encounters were to take place between God and Moshe. It was quite a stunning structure. It's worth seeing in a picture and not just imagining. I've included a few links in the attached source sheet for that purpose. The Israelites were asked to donate a vast variety and a wealth of materials, which are an interior designer's dream. All different royal colors, blue, purple, crimson, textures of fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins, leather, acacia wood, gold and other metals, as well as precious stones and oils and spices for sensual atmosphere. The Mishkan furnishings were elegant yet minimal, and they were precisely positioned. In the innermost room, there would be an ark. In the Kodesh Kodeshim, there was an ark. There would be an ark made of acacia wood and plated with gold. What was it used for? It was used for housing the testimonial tablets, the edut of the commandments that were given at Sinai. The Ramban Nachmanides, in his commentary on this chapter, claims that the Mishkan, which would be carried with the Jewish nation on its journey into the Promised Land, was meant to be like a portable Mount Sinai, so that the experience of the revelation at Sinai and the presence of God in their midst would continue to be felt by all the people during this precarious transition and dangerous period of time from being slaves to becoming a sovereign people in their land. The ark itself, the Aron, was open at the top, but it had a fitted lid called a kaporet. The kaporet was also made of wood. It was covered with gold, with two cherub figures carved on top, winged figures facing each other. Between these two cherub figures is the exact place where the intimate communing between God and Moses would take place. Many of our traditions liken that room to the intimacy of a bedroom. That was the innermost room, the Holy of Holies, Kodesh HaKodeshim. In the outer room of the Mishkan's interior, called the Holy, Kodesh, God commissioned a gold-plated wooden table for displaying bread, just like a kitchen or dining area of a home, as well as a few vessels, bowls, ladles, and jars, perhaps used for preparing the bread, or perhaps for decoration. Then God ordered a gold menorah to be made, maybe like the living room in our homes, illuminated with olive oil lamps, symbolizing wisdom and the divine presence. An elegant simplicity was the design of the Mishkan. I could definitely take inspiration from the Mishkan for my own home. Right now, sitting in my office space, my sense of well-being could really benefit from a better lighting, from a more organized uh, space, from a minimal furniture. I could really uh, take some inspiration and use it 
in my own space. If we look around our own spaces, if you look around your own space, whether it requires a small monetary investment or no monetary investment at all, to what extent could you benefit from making some shift, some change in your space? Like getting rid of extraneous possessions or clearing off a desk or making order on a shelf. How can I make a small change in my living space so that my heart will feel aligned with the ambiance of that space? The places where we choose to meet a friend or a lover or lahavdil in a different way to connect spiritually with the divine are likely to be places where we are drawn by the decor, by the aesthetics of that place. So perhaps the Torah is telling me that I need to make my own home like a mishkan or like a mikdash, a place in which I encounter the divine. A small change in my living space, even one that does not cost a penny, can make a meaningful impact on how I relate in that space to myself and to others and even to God. Life lesson number two is about being sensitive to the love languages of the people we care about. A love language is a term coined for how we like to give and how we like to receive love. According to the love language theory, there are five different ways people like to receive love, but not all the ways I like to give love are the ways my friend or partner or child likes to receive love. If my husband were to show up and surprise me with a cup of gourmet coffee, for example, I would be appreciative of his gesture, but it would be awkward because I don't like coffee and I don't drink coffee. That may be his love language and it may not be mine. One of the five love languages is affection. Some people love to be touched. Others can be perturbed by touch if they don't ask for it. The last time I kissed my granddaughter on the top of her head recently in a moment of uh, an upsurge of love for her, she looked at me square in the eye and she said very candidly, I don't like kisses, not even on my head. Another love language is gift giving. A friend of mine who's an artist is fantastic at buying gifts for others and sometimes crafting her own gifts because she loves the language of gift giving. But not everyone feels that gifts create intimacy. Some people would much rather receive love by enjoying a few minutes of quality time together or by having a sweet conversation more than receiving gifts. How does this relate back to our Parsha? So in Shemot chapter 25, verse 8, God says, Make for me, meaning for God, a sanctuary, a structure, so I can dwell in them. God is is seeking relationship with the people. Nevertheless, God calls the structure he is ordering the people to make for him a mishkan, a dwelling place. We may assume that we need that space, but the Torah is saying that God needs that space. Does God need a dwelling place? The entire world is God's dwelling place. In fact, most people who believe in God experience God in the vast beauty of nature in a majestic snowy mountain range, in an ocean sunset, or in a blossoming fruit tree. Right now in Israel, the countryside is covered with almond trees that are blossoming like popcorn in delicate and exquisite shades of pink and white. So how can we imagine God needing a structure which is just a few yards long and a few yards wide? We may assume that we need the structure, an aesthetic space which will inspire 
our spiritual desire. And that is also true. But the verses say that God wishes to have a dwelling place here on earth. So while I personally might prefer to commune with God in the privacy of my own backyard, or at the beach while the sun is setting, the Torah is actually telling us that God wants there to be also one place, a central unifying place, where the Jewish people with all their differences, with all their diversities, with all their dissimilarities, can rally and connect with one another, as well as with God. In these postmodern times, we're used to listening very intently to our own desires, to what moves us and what doesn't move us, to what we enjoy wholeheartedly and what we do not. We're able to shop for the exact flavors we like, and we're able to shop for the precise style of our clothing or accessories or shoes. Even when it comes to our spiritual lives, we are acutely aware of what works for us spiritually and what doesn't. And when it comes to God, maybe the Torah is telling us that God also has love languages. The opening words of this chapter, thus spoke God to Moshe, we deber Shem el Moshe, make me a tabernacle, make me an ark, make me a lid, make me a table, make me a menorah, all the way through the next two Torah portions from beginning to end, God is telling the Jewish people what to make and how to make it. Maybe the Torah is challenging us to consider not only what feels good to me and comes from my heart in seeking a relationship with the divine, but maybe the Torah is challenging us to ask this question, to what extent do our evolving traditions align themselves with what the divine is asking for in the Torah, even if it is not what moves my heart at this very moment? To what extent does any relationship require a mutuality of giving and seeking to fulfill the desires and satisfy the love languages of the other? What would happen if I asked someone today or this week, someone I care about, what their preferred love language is? and what I can do for them using their love language. Life lesson number three, silver sockets can be meaningful. There were two ways donations were collected for the tabernacle, voluntary donations and involuntary or obligatory taxation. Our Torah portion begins with the voluntary contributions. In the beginning of Shemot chapter 25 in this Torah portion, God spoke to Moshe saying, speak to the children of Israel that they take for me an offering from every person whose heart moves them, take my offering. I'll read it in Hebrew. Vaydaber Adonai el Moshe lemor, daber el bnei Yisrael veikhuli turuma, meet kol ish asher yidven olibo, tikhu et turumati. That means a person who was enamored by the idea of a mishkan for the divine presence would give a lot from every person whose heart moves them, take my offering, means that a person who is ambivalent about that project might give a little. A person who is not moved at all by the cause might give nothing. In our day, wealthy folks who are moved by a cause usually donate significantly, and they are given honors that are fitting to their generosity. Their names are memorialized and attached to the projects or the buildings or the foundations that are named after them. The freedom to donate as my heart moves me is a wonderful idea, and who doesn't want freedom? But as a society, there's a price we pay for that freedom. When there are major donors 
who are free to donate however much they want to wherever they want. So I might think, who needs the few shekels or dollars that an average person like me is able to donate? Starting out in chapter 25, the Torah asks people to volunteer their offerings. But this isn't the only mode of giving toward the Mishkan. Maybe the Torah is actually recognizing this freedom, freedom of donating voluntarily, as a flaw, as a potential flaw, we'll say, in society. Where do we see the tikkun, the correcting of that model of the voluntary giving? We see it in chapter 30 of the book of Shemot, Exodus, where a half-shekel tax is collected from every adult for the purpose of building the Mishkan. The amount is set, machatzita shekel, half a shekel. The wealthy may not increase, and the poor may not decrease the amount they give. What's the purpose of the half-shekel, machatzita shekel? Wouldn't it have been easier to receive more donations from less people? Think about the time and the tedious work it takes to collect from 600,000 people. The answer is that everyone needs to give in order to belong, to bring people together, to show that in our essence, we are all engaged, we are all connected, we are all valued, and maybe we are all equal. How important was that basic half-shekel tax so, so long ago in our history? It was important, and it still is so important to our tradition that we have a special public Torah reading in synagogue about the gathering of that half-shekel. It is read as the maftir, the additional portion of the Torah, um, which was read at the end of last week's Torah portion, Parshat Mishpatim. Not only is that section read in public, but that entire Shabbat is called Shabbat Shekalim, the Shabbat of the silver shekels. That's how important it is. There are a few life lessons I think we can take away from that half-shekel tax. First of all, it reminds us that small donations, when made by thousands of people, add up to major wealth. Major wealth. The sum total of those half-shekels, which were collected from over 600,000 adults, actually made up the majority of the wealth needed to build and maintain the Mishkan, the tabernacle, even more than the individual donations. A second takeaway is the simple psychology of donating. When we donate any amount, even when we're obligated to do so, we feel a sense of connection and of belonging because we have played a part. We pay for our roads in our taxes. It belongs to us. We suddenly have a stake in the project because we have paid something for it. So why ask for then voluntary contributions of gold and silver, copper and wood and leather and fabrics? Because without the unique contributions of individuals who were moved to contribute, the Mishkan would have been made entirely of silver. It would have been monotonous it would have been less attractive and less interesting. But most importantly, it would not have united everyone. So on the one hand, the Torah values freedom. We know that. The, but the Torah especially values the freedom to contribute whenever and however much my heart moves me. But there's a problem with freedom, because freedom produces inequality. Because not everyone, and actually most people, may not feel connected to the project or will not be moved to give. On the other hand, the lack of freedom, the coercive obligation, the tax, is what reminds us of our essential equality. We're all equal. We're all responsible. And this is critical because no two people feel equal. 
Every person has unique fingerprints, a unique face, a unique talent, unique, a unique voice. No one has exactly the same personality, the same desires, the same loves, the same attractions. So how does the Mishkan combine these two values? The value of equality, equal taxation, obligatory, and the value of inequality, where everyone can be free to contribute whatever they are moved to contribute. So one of my teachers, Rabbi Yolben Binun, a world-class Tanakh scholar, he says that the answer can be found in the beginning and end of the, sorry, in the beginning of and end of chapter 38, which is toward the very end of the book of Shemot, which ends in chapter 40. There the Torah tells us that the half shekels of silver that everyone donated were used to make none other than the 96 silver sockets upon which the 48 wooden planks of the Mishkan, meaning the walls of the Mishkan and the pillars of the Mishkan, were set. They were set in those sockets. So if we imagine these silver sockets being what hold up the entire structure and keep it stable, then maybe we can understand that the foundation upon which the entire Mishkan stands reflects the perfect equality of all of the people of Israel the equality, and the unity. The foundations of the Mishkan were contributed by everyone equally, without freedom to choose. But on top of that, there was freedom to contribute. No matter how generously the wealthy folks and those whose hearts moved them, no matter how much they donated to the Mishkan, when Moses' messengers knocked on their door to take the half shekel, those wealthy people could not open their tent flap and say, "Eh, no, I gave already. They also needed to give their half shekel to be counted as equals, to be unified with the rest of the community. So this conversation, as I end it, suddenly makes me want to donate to the new Pardes building, which will be constru- constructed in, the Jerusalem, in Jerusalem very, very soon. Now, no one told me to say this, and I hope it's okay that I'm saying this, um, because this is really just something coming from my heart, that the new modern state-of-the-art Pardes building will be the central place in the Jewish world here in Jerusalem, for disseminating and teaching Jewish text, Pardes style, to anyone in the world, not only in the Jewish community, but also way beyond. There are major contributions being provided already for this building by extremely generous supporters of Pardes. The building and the Beit Midrash will be named for some extraordinarily benevolent donors. But wouldn't it be amazing if every person who ever benefited or wanted to benefit from Pardes was asked to contribute the equivalent of a half shekel of silver, just like for the Mishkan? Of course it wouldn't happen because Pardes is non-coercive about everything. But I want to think about the idea for one last moment. Personally, I wish I was able to donate an auditorium or a beautiful and inviting outdoor courtyard or a striking entryway But considering what we learned about the half-shekel contribution, I feel like now I could also be happy donating something in my own budget, like a socket, one silver socket, but one silver socket that's going to be part of the foundation of that new building. Suddenly, that sounds meaningful. It might even give me a sense of, of belonging, of partnership, of equality, and of unity with every other person who's on the giving end, as well as on the receiving end, of making Pardes' dream a reality. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Tovalea. 
Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardes from Jerusalem.